0: This is The Urban Political.
1: The podcast on urban theory, research and activism.
0: So welcome everyone. Um, we have lots of guests today. Uh, could we take it in turns uh, to introduce ourselves? So let us know a bit about where you are, where you work um, and what kind of work you've been doing recently and your brief uh, uh, idea of how you've been uh coping with the, the, the current situation start with you Michelle perhaps
2: sure well hi everyone and thanks for for having me on my name is Michelle Buckley and I'm an assistant professor in human geography at the University of Toronto Scarborough um, <clears throat> I'm an urban and economic geographer um, uh, whose focus in the last while has been on uh, construction work and particularly migrant construction work but also decent work in a, in cities and urban economies. And I am currently at home with my entire family and we may get interrupted by my kids at any moment. <laughs> so that's my current situation.
3: Hi, this is Rajan. Uh, I am an assistant professor of political sciences at Christ, deemed to be University Bangalore. I did my PhD in political science from Center for Political Studies JNU uh, on peasant movements and land acquisition in Northern India. I have been also working as a freelance journalist covering basically freelance political journalist covering elections and electoral equations across uh, Eastern, Western and Northern India for last 10 years. And uh, my work interest also revolves around geographies of work and political economy.
4: Okay, so I'm Ritujyuti Bondopadhyay. I uh, teach history and political economy at uh, a central government institute in India called Indian Institute of Science Education and Research in Mohali. So it is I, I live in in Chandigarh, Mohali, and uh, my earlier and ongoing research projects explore themes in informality, infrastructure technologies, and governmentality studies in late-colonial and post-colonial India. I'm particularly interested in studying the materiality of mass politics as India transitioned from imperial sovereignty to popular sovereignty. And I'm also interested in genealogies of Marxism and Fascism uh, mm, uh, sort of infested in popular consciousness in South Asia. My PhD was on um, street vending in Calcutta. So that actually gave me some idea of migration uh, in the region. Uh, And I started building up my collaboration with Rajan on this issue uh, around those reviving those contacts uh, that I had with me. So this is my situation right now.
1: Thank you, everyone, for uh, your intros. Um, today, the episode is going to deal with the topic of um, migration, specifically labor migration in the context of uh, the pandemic. And uh, we are looking forward to you sharing your insights in terms of how the pandemic and the responses um, have affected patterns of uh mobility, uh, labor mobility, uh, specifically in India, but also Canada, the Gulf region, and I guess elsewhere. So um, to get us started, um, uh, if you could uh, tell us about your uh, insights in terms of how the pandemic has affected the patterns of migration, uh, the lives of the migrants and their networks Um, in those regions and fields that you're researching?
2: So, uh, if that's okay with Rajan and um, Rito, I mean, first off, seeing as the global health crisis is twinned with now what is a profound global financial crisis, what we've seen in many cases is capital's massive shedding of migrant workers who are often, as we've seen before, at the forefront of economic crises. They're usually the first, you know, last hired and first fired. Um, but many, many of whom who are now out of work uh, and are, are trying to find some way to return home. So we've seen in some countries large, a huge exodus of, of migrant workers trying to return to, uh, to ho- um, home, home countries. But at the very same time, we've seen governments around the world um, halt commercial flights and close borders uh, and restrict trade and bus travel. Um, just as huge numbers of migrant workers have been let go. And so those those twinned uh, dynamics for many migrant workers have created uh, 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 either conditions in which they are stranded in the, the host country and unable to return home, um, or, and I'm sure um, uh, uh, Rajan and Rito might be able to speak to this, cases in which people are really on the move within their uh, their home country, trying to return home amidst uh, border border closings and uh, um, vast changes in the transportation infrastructure of, of home countries.
3: So, uh, yeah, let me give just the context of India. See, India is a quasi-federal state. So we have states and we have a very strong center. What we are seeing right now is unfolding at many scales. One is at the federal uh, scale between the states uh, among themselves and between the center and the state. The other is the plight of the migrant workers and then the changes in the economy and future changes that are likely to happen after the crisis. So uh, let's go one by one. Uh, first thing is that the migrant workers, the scale of migrant workers in India is huge. Uh, there are no official datas, but some people estimate that it could be as high as almost 40 crores, so 400 million people. So we are talking about huge numbers here, and uh, there are some states where because of lack of opportunities, large number of people migrate. So Bihar is one, Uttar Pradesh is another, where there is huge population and majority migrates to big urban centers. Now what is happening post-lockdown, these people have been left at the mercy. Majority of these people live in extremely unhygienic conditions, uh, financially very weak situation in which they don't have the support of the state in any term. For example, they don't have a ration card in the state where they are doing work after migration, so they can't avail those facilities. Uh, Their work is of such nature that they don't have savings. So in that scenario, living in those states Uh, they don't have any other option but to either get starved to death or leave. So that's why when this this lockdown was announced, and it was announced in a very hasty manner, uh, we saw hundreds and thousands of people just taking roads. Some people uh, were willing to travel thousands of kilometers back home because buses were stopped, uh, means of transport were stopped. Some actually succeeded in doing that, But there were some couple of uh, hundreds of people who actually died. So there were more than 100 cases of death reported because of exhaustion and all. Just today, there were, uh, say, more than a dozen people died on railway tracks when they were walking back towards home. These things uh, have actually brought the scale of uh, migration in, in India to common knowledge, number one, and the plight of these people who don't have any other option. They are even risking their lives to go back because they know that staying in the city is not an option for them. So that's one. Second thing is interstate and with the center. Now every state has been left to find for itself. The amount of central assistance is almost nil. So in that situation, uh, state governments which are capable or which are willing to take drastic measures, and which have resources to do that, are actually doing very well. So we have the case of Kerala, a tiny South Indian state under a communist government currently, uh, which did extremely well. It was the first state which has highest number of cases, and currently they, they have been successful in flattening the curve. But we have other states, for example, the state of Maharashtra, where the number of cases is actually rising, Tamil Nadu, another South Indian state, cases actually rising. And the center, there are many issues on which the states are at loggerheads with center. The case, uh, one particular case is the tribal state of Jharkhand, where the government is actually willing to bring back the migrants. And the the state government is willing to bring back the migrant, but the central government is not allowing, and there are some tussles going on between them. And second thing uh, is that uh, in this whole scenario, we are seeing many, many kind of discriminations coming to the fore. For example, when it came to taking bringing back the stranded students uh, in other states, uh, students go for medical coaching in Rajasthan, medical and engineering considered uh, prime middle-class jobs. Uh, they keep going for coaching in Rajasthan, which is a hub for that. So majority of the states wanted to bring back their children, and they actually did it. But when it come, came to bringing back the migrants, only some states like Jharkhand came up and said, yes, we want to bring them. And on that, the question of starting rails, uh, rails special trains for them uh, became a point of conflict because the central government was charging the money and then there was political. So that is happening. And the third level is that uh, two state governments have recently came out, Madhya Pradesh government and uh, Uttar Pradesh government, both ruled by BJP, saying that for next two and a half to three years, a majority of the labor laws will not apply on, on factories and smaller establishments. Because we have to give some impetus to industrial activity, we have to give some legroom to them. So these are the levels in which, say, from semi-slavery kind of situation of workers, semi-starvation situation of workers, to now formalizing that kind of exploitation is happening. I think Rithu would like to add some things to that.
4: So, uh, so as Rajan was mentioning about the new reports coming from Karnataka. Uh, suggesting that uh, COVID-19 lockdown has become the occasion for the formalization of bonded labor and slavery. As uh, the government uh, withdrew, now they have revised it, but withdrew initially uh, the support that they gave initially to transport the uh, workers, construction workers mainly, from uh, the um, host state to the center state so we know thousands of homebound migrants have been forced to stay back as well as the government suspended the special train from them in the for them in the last moment moreover there is another interesting thing that i should uh, probably mention here section 32 of indian contract act of 1872 it's a colonial legislation 1872 which deals with the modalities of the enforcement of contract Uh, contracts contingent on an event happening or the force majeure uh, provision has suddenly become very significant. Uh, So uh, this is very important because uh, there are new uh, legal reforms that we will see already there is a context to this because Indian uh, government has uh, is in the process of scrapping 40 very important labor legislations and simplify them into four uh, catch-all categories uh, in the name of ease of doing business. So, uh, of course, uh, there will be new forms of servitude and new forms of Um, uh, bondage and wage hunting gathering uh, uh, that is uh, going to happen. So I stop here and I um, maybe Michelle or Rajan may add to this.
2: Sure, perhaps just to uh, pick up on what Rito was just saying about the remittances, I think um, what's happening in India is is emblematic of what's happening in many other uh, parts. And I think the ILO's recent forecast for this year is that remittance... um, Flows are, are forecasted to be down by uh, upwards of uh, $110 billion. So I think within this, as we think about cities and migration, we can also consider how the economic circuitry between uh, cities and uh, non-urban areas as a result of the connections between migrant labor is being recast quite fundamentally. That's, that circuitry um, is being hit very, very hard
1: can i ask a question um it's today may 8th um and um here in germany the 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 lockdown is already eased up to some extent uh, there are certain uh openings uh happening because the the curve has flattened um, sufficiently what is the situation right now in india is there any any real effects of flattening the curve happening or or what what is the situation of yeah, the pandemic? I would
3: like to, yeah, I would like to answer that. Uh, in India, what has happened is the lockdown, the extension of lockdown that is going on is actually the third phase of uh, lockdown. So this third phase, what they did is they divided the country according to districts uh, into three zones, green, red and orange. Green zone with less number of cases or almost no cases and red zone with highest number of cases. And then, according to the zone, they gave some relaxations. So, first thing that they did in green zone, I'm in green zone. Guhati, majority of the northeastern states in India are actually in green zones. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's also because of the, uh, the alienation that these areas faced. Uh, the instances of virus or instances of cases, discovery of cases here is very less. So there are some states in uh, in Northeast, some tribal states in Northeast, where there are almost no cases, or the cases have not reached three digits. Even in the state of Assam, which is the biggest Northeast states, uh, they, have reached, they haven't reached, they have reached three digits. So these green zone states, they have allowed concessions. So people can go out from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., uh, Shops can open till 5 p.m. Non-adjacent so- shops can open marketplaces, but are not allowed to open. Uh, standalone shops shops are being allowed to open some activity. For example, there will be flood in uh, in from starting from next month. Seasonal flood it happens every year. So construction of check dams and all those activities are allowed. Agriculture is allowed, and these uh, relaxations are extended across green districts. Across India, so that's happening. But some sectors uh, don't see any any uh, ray of hope. For example, construction, which 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 takes a large number of migrant workers, uh, a significant number of construction activities have not started. Significant number, not all. Some have started. So uh, that's number one. Second thing, hospitality sector. As Ritu was saying, now there is there are some some sectors. Uh, hospitality also employs a significant number of people there is no opening and there is no hope also of opening then supply chain uh, supply chain has not come back uh, as it was in pre-corona days so it will take days to revive because some workers have gone home, or some just can't go back to work so in that scenario a large number of workers who work in the supply chain uh, they are also hit so Some things are are starting, of course, red zones and uh, red zones have almost no um, relaxations like this and orange zones have limited. But the state has also allowed interstate migration of workers, stranded workers and students and other people if both states, the home state and the state in which the migrant is currently agree on a mode of transport, sharing the cost and other things and their a lot of trouble is coming because there are some host states, uh, there are some home states like Bihar, which don't want their workers to re- return, thinking that these workers may bring disease with them. In fact, in the state of Odisha, uh, the High Court has actually uh, said that those workers who are positive or who have some risk will not be allowed to come, come back to the state. So this is the situation in India. I think Rito may like to add something or somebody else. You know, uh, when we talk of
4: these migrants, uh, one, uh, can you hear me now? So um, uh, another thing that we need to keep in mind is that uh, these are very unstable, roving mobile populations. So a recent survey, for instance, of migrant workers in construction sector in Delhi and Lucknow, say that it reports that 63 percent of sample could be termed as single migrants making 2.55 tri- t- 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 time strips each year to their villages and dividing the year almost equally between the city and the village. More strikingly o- over half of them had been into this circular migration for close to a decade or so. So we are talking about a highly mobile uh, precarious population, uh, who are not in the PDS, uh, public distribution system uh, network as well. Therefore, they are very hard hit and Rajan has done some really interesting research in this particular field.
0: We've been talking about politics the whole time, but if we think um, uh, specifically about forms of uh, resistance now and maybe moving forward. Uh, in this situation, which um, uh, I think Michelle said, you know, it's kind of a, is at least a double crisis, a multiple crisis, a health crisis, a financial economic crisis. Um, what kind of resistances or political types of political organization um, do we see, uh, or do we see emerging uh, uh, in, in the coming months? Um, and is it possible to say something about the specialities at work there in terms of? Is that like occurring in specific urban areas, suburban areas? Do we see that in, in rural areas? Is, are there transnational links there? Solidarities which which are interesting and observable at present.
2: Perhaps I'll chime in here just to uh, to get us started. I mean, I think um, my sense of things is that migrant workers and their allies and their organizations, at least here in Canada, and I'm sure um, elsewhere, are you know have already been. Very organized around so many of these issues, from universal health care um, to decent working conditions and more. Um, and so, I think that here in Canada, at least, it's it's rendering campaigns and work that's already been underway. Uh, it's sort of um, it's imbuing a lot of this work with uh, a much more urgent um, and perhaps more. I would hope more kind of recognized um, urgency. Um, and so uh, one of the things that we have done in that um, Marcus and Ross, you've so helpfully uh, agreed to is that we, we thought it might be helpful and interesting for your listeners to see a list of the many campaigns that are underway right now, um, both here in North America, but also in India um, and across Europe. And so there might be some really interesting, um, Uh, links that listeners can follow there, but also that uh, might speak to some of um, the, you know, the very local campaigns that are happening, but also the sort of nation state and international campaigns that are that are being waged. Um, And so I think that's, that's one of the things that are happening the the migrant rights network here, for example, has been very, very um, active in calls, almost working in a multi-scalar way. So, working at the um, at the level of the workplace. By, for example, um, uh, the government of Canada has recently, you know, they closed their borders at the very beginning of the of the crisis, and then in response to, uh, in a lot of cases, an outcry by uh, uh, farms at the beginning of the the the, the growing season here in Canada began to open their borders to to migrant workers heading to farms. You know, there are uh, uh, 60,000 non-citizen seasonal migrants that that come and are absolutely the backbone of Canada's food system. Um, And following this, there were major major concerns about uh, living quarters and the potential uh, occupational health and safety issues around COVID uh, transmission for workers. Um, and so the, they were working at the level of the, of the workplace to really um, call on the federal government to immediately require employers of migrant workers to provide adequate health and safety protections on those work sites. But we've also seen, you know, the, the Migrant Rights Network already works at the level of the country. It's a a, a network that actually comprises 40 or more uh, migrant, uh, migrant workers, uh, advocacy groups, um, and migrants groups uh, from across the country. So... I think part of what this uh, underscores for me, at least in the Canadian context is that um, migrant rights groups are already working at multiple scales. And I think uh, through social media and other, other ways, I think we're seeing that their message is perhaps reaching, I hope reaching new audiences um, as opposed to uh, them making brand new claims. I think that the, the claims are now being filtered through the lens of COVID.
3: Okay. Okay. Uh... I would like to pick from here. In India, what, what's happening is that majority of the trade union activity uh, was into the organized sector, traditionally also. So organized sector comprises safe workplaces or at least regular jobs and other things. Uh, coming up, but the organizing workforce are very small, very minuscule percentage of the actual workforce in India. So majority of these migrant workers fall under the under the category of unorganized workers or unorganized sector. So construction workers are there, sanitation workers are there. Then there are workers working in food chains, in supply chains, in, in shops, in, in other activities, in hospitality, in, in real estate. There are workers working in, in small factories which employ less than 20 people uh, or small factories which employ less than 40 people some, some are as small as, uh, say, 7, 8, less, uh, less than 10 people. So these are the people who are the hardest hit. And uh, first thing is that uh, they, hawkers, uh, footpath dwellers, these, peoples, uh, these people never had a union in most of the places in India already. So uh, that's one. That The first thing in terms of organized activity, uh, though there have been attempts in Calcutta, Rito will tell more, about the street vendors, unions, and in Delhi there were attempts to unionize the, the street vendors and other people, and construction workers, people have been trying to unionize them. But the amount of workers who have been unionized or who are under any union gambit is still a very small percentage of the actual workforce, which which is there in the un- unorganized sector. So in the first place, these people had no, uh, no security from the side of a union. Um, in to begin with secondly what is happening right now is the lockdown has been imposed in such a manner and then violation of it has been termed like a, a kind of sedition seditious activity uh, that coming out on roads or or doing a protest of any kind is is not possible in organized manner So that doesn't mean that there have not been any protests or there have not been any acts of resistance. For example, despite the lockdown orders and everything, the first moment of resistance was when we saw hundreds and thousands of people coming out on roads, walking towards their home, when the government declined them any means to travel. And uh, at, at one point of time, even the police and the security paraphernalia was... Uh, could not do anything about that. So that was one moment. Then there have been instances of uh, protests from uh, stranded migrant workers. One was a case in Mumbai. There was a case in IIT. There have been some other... IIT Hyderabad, there have been cases from other places. But in terms of organized activities, the unions as of now uh, don't find themselves in a situation to organize any kind of protest uh, given the current situation. So majority of the unions that I know who are working in unorganized sector Uh, as of now and since last uh, say four five weeks and more they have been doing what they have been doing is welfare so they have been uh, taking contributions and distributing uh, relief to workers rations uh, medicine or other things maybe some other requirement they initially they tried to use the government infrastructure also for example the case of delhi initially they tried to use it but then The government uh, simply said we can't do anything so as of now majority of the unions who work in organized sector are actually uh, doing welfare Uh, other than that the most of the protest is basically there in in social media maybe uh, but but there are attempts to now uh, take things further i think rito will would like to add something on that
4: yeah, so, um, uh, so I work with uh, an organization called National Hawker Federation, which is uh, the largest federal uh, body of uh, street vendors in India with a membership of 80 lakhs, which is about 8 million um, uh, people uh, in it. And they have a sizable presence uh, in the informal economy in uh, Calcutta, Bombay and Hyderabad and also in Delhi. So in these four cities, uh, they are quite uh, vibrant and they have been organizing uh, relief work, uh, not just for hawkers, but also for, say, example, uh, uh, sex workers, uh, pavement dwellers, and other uh, contributors in the informal economy as rajan pointed out you may know the international audience may note that 90% of indian employment is informal employment where trade union activity is not very consolidated so street hawkers are one of uh, um, one among uh, unorganized sector uh, where you have some semblance of unionization. So they have been doing these kinds of works and recently what National Hawker Federation has done quite successfully in terms of media campaign is to expose uh, the kinds of uh, um, discrimination that Muslim hawkers are facing, Muslim street vendors are facing in major Indian cities. So when uh, applying for uh, say a license to vent, uh, Hindu hawkers have been privileged over Muslim hawkers in many instances, and uh, also there are social boycotts of Muslim hawkers, uh, saying that like terrorism, they also propagate uh, virus. Virus is a new form of Islamic terror. Uh, that is something that has been in the propaganda of Hindutva state uh, for a while in India. So, so what I'm all I'm trying to say is that there are. A certain interesting borders, social borders, sociological borders that are emerging. So there is a racial fault line to this. There is a um, ethnic and ethnic fault line to this, and there is a very strong communal front line to this. And therefore, I'm saying that unions have to uh, imagine a kind of generality that has uh, been lost.
0: Fascinating uh, insights, uh, Rito. I I just wondered, um, uh, just following up on that, um, Michelle. If it was possible to say anything about uh, potential um, radicalization uh, occurring in Canada or North America, or the, this uh, um, this potential to sort of expand uh, uh, struggles or create these kind of solidarities.
2: Sure. I mean, I think there's some really interesting things on the horizon. I just, I also. So, um, I mean, before saying that, I think just to pick up on what um, Rito and Rajan's excellent comments, really important comments, I think as we think about radicalization and resistance, I think it's also important to consider, you know, who has the ability uh, to engage in resistance and who has the ability to, um, I think, as as Rajan and Rito pointed to and thinking about, you know, who's protesting, who is supported by the government, who is potentially facing retrenchment and and, um, targeting by the state. Um, What does resistance look like? And what what does a a potentially kind of radical response look like? So there's been a really interesting conversation here in Canada, which as a labor geographer, I'm very heartened to hear about, uh, around what it means to, say, for example, refuse unsafe work. Um, And so in some cases, um, we might think also of, say, Uh, migrant worker absenteeism as a kind of um, uh, sort of personal form of responding to um, concerns about unsafe work and and work that's not decent. Um, But I think in terms of the the sort of a collective response, I think one of the really interesting things that that has been happening is, um, you know, groups like the Workers' Action Centre here uh, and the Migrants' Rights Networks, have been campaigning for um, really crucial work uh, condition improvements for all sorts of workers, including migrant workers. And that, that includes, for example, a campaign to um, make sure that everybody has access to paid sick days. Um, now, prior to COVID, this was really about, you know, people are sick, they need to be able to stay home. If they have to care for sick uh, dependents, they need to be able to stay home. Um, currently, in the, in the moment of COVID, Of course, it's become a crucial, um, campaign whose importance is really about, uh, making sure everybody's safe, right? That if somebody can't take time off work, that they, um, that they are inevitably going to become a vector potentially of, of, um, so questions about labor rights are really intersecting in really important ways with, uh, with concerns about, um, you know, flattening the curve. So, um. I, I feel of two ways here. I think, you know, there's been a lot of recognition of the crucial ways that migrant workers in healthcare, in construction, in, um, uh, in food services and logistics are, uh, you know, undergird our ability to survive. Um, and I, you know, this could just end up be a sort of liberal celebration of uh, migrant workers and their, you know, their heroic efforts to to sort of um, uh, see us through this crisis. But what I think my interest, um, what is interesting here is that the, the health and the labor rights for, for workers may be motivated by, by new groups of people um, based on their own self-interest. Right. So, for example, if um, middle and upper class households uh, employ undocumented or um, uh, you know migrant workers, um, the health and welfare of of workers becomes now intimately tied and connected to their own their own health. So there could be some some important. And the politics, I think, of this will be really fraught, but I I do think that there are are new dimensions here that may make certain people uh, more interested, for example, in extending universal health care and testing uh, to undocumented workers who may not have been before. Um, I guess I'll I'll leave it there. I'll see if Rajan and and Rijal may want to expand on this.
3: Yeah, uh, I would like to say, say something, say... But let me build a case to to show how different things are uh, here. For example, uh, we are talking about unorganised sector, so the image comes uh, of a very unorganised kind of area. But let's talk about how even the organised and unorganised, and then I'll say I'll go to how COVID is leading to some other things. See, in Delhi there is a corporation called DSIIDC, Delhi State Industrial and Infrastructure Development Corporation, which is basically a state government corporation that takes care of building industrial zones into Delhi. There are some 22 industrial zones that DSIIDC is uh, in charge of. Uh, these industrial zones are basically plots where they, there are factories, it's all industrial areas, small factories, manufacturing, whatever, whatever is happening there. Now, what is happening in these factories is that though they are built by DSIIDC and all those things, what is being manufactured in those factories? Are there proper safety measures or not? What, what kind of uh, fire safety is there or what kind of products they are making uh, is something which is totally off the horizon. Nobody has even the data. The Delhi government, many people have questioned it, but the Delhi government don't have the data for all the units that are operating into these 22 plus sites and what type of manufacturing or packaging or whatever industrial activity they are doing. They don't have any data. Even in these sites. So what happens in these areas is that once it is made, uh, uh, the area is demarcated and all, and the plots are allotted to potential industrial uh, clients, uh, producers uh, by the DSIIDC making of the uh, building and all those things, and then fire safety and other, these, these become responsibility of other agencies. It becomes so distributed that nobody knows what's happening there, that the government is planning to, to ease labor laws. So there are plans to actually, uh, to actually uh, exempt factories having 40 or less workers, or maybe 20 or less workers with power uh, working in a place from any labor laws, from sanitation facilities, drinking water facilities, ventilation facilities to to fire safety or other things. So what will happen is that post-COVID, and it is actually happening, post-COVID, these workers who who were already marginalized, but these were some areas which are secluded. Now there will be a generalization of this. Now there will be a hue and cry for making this the ruling principle because the economy needs a boost. And second thing that is happening is that some factories are leaving China. Uh, every country in this region is now wooing, trying to woo those factories. So states have, uh, in their competitive economic federalism framework, have started uh, making attempts to do that. So Assam recently came out with a plan that we have are going to acquire this much land for giving it to factories. And now every state will be in a competition to give land packages to these industries and other concessions to these industries. And then there will be an increased conflict because land acquisition will happen at the cost of the farmland. So there will be a, a revival of conflict for land acquisition against land acquisition from farmer's sides. So this is a scenario in which I think uh, I think uh, it's, it's going to be a little more difficult than pre-COVID scenario, because on the one hand, all these things are happening. Uh, On the other hand, what is happening, which should not go unnoticed, is the rise of the surveillance state. Uh, It's now normal for the state to keep surveillance on your four. There is a ROK SETU app that the government is pushing everyone to download in their smartphones, which actually keeps tracking every almost uh, a large number of parameters. Uh, d- data across a large number of parameters and keep sending it to the government. So what we are witnessing is a rise of surveillance state and a justification for that surveillance uh, for the cause of public good uh, along with all these things. So in that scenario, I think it's it's going to be a bit more difficult. Rito can pick up from here.
4: So I just wanted to say that, you know, a lot of uh, discussion that is going around in government circle. is. Actually, how to externalize COVID-19 crisis? To bail out capital from this particular disaster. But if you follow the works of Rob Wallace, for example, and others, you will see that COVID-19 is actually a byproduct of supply chain capitalism. You cannot externalize it. It is internal to uh, to the history of capital. And there, actually, I would suggest that, you know, the uh, COVID-19 crisis will hit uh, the informal economy and will create a vicious cycle. So uh, the crisis of 2020, that is the COVID-19 crisis, is going to impact India's informal economy more dearly than the Great Recession of 2008 eight nine. Uh, Because of certain legacy issues, let me tell it very uh, bluntly, such as the incomplete recovery of the informal economy in India from the shock of demonetization and goods and services tax. A lot of this 90% of Indian economy, uh, the Indian employment that is there in the informal economy is cash-based. And what demonetization did, demonetization led to the shrinking of the family silver that is there in the informal economy. And uh, uh, informal economy is still grappling with it. And uh, around that time, if you have uh, a COVID-19 crisis, then there will be a devastation in the informal economy, and which means an inevitable reduction in the consuming power of 90% of Indians, leading to a massive crisis of demand so that is something that i uh, wanted to say that there is a crisis of demand and if this continues then there will be a disaster so what is needed is again uh, a universal basic income uh, for all without any discrimination and universal public distribution system these are very important uh, i think policy recommendations that you know many from the opposition have been mobilizing, and many academics uh, have been mobilizing as well. Uh, So I leave it there.
1: Well, thank you everyone. I think we we ended with a big uh, bang there at the end. Um, Thank you for your very uh, differentiated accounts. I think we really learned much more about how Complicated, also the situation is about the opportunities and threats, and of course, um, the, the the different linkages that that exist or that that uh, are being revealed through this crisis. So, thank you again very much, uh, Michelle Rito and Rajan, for sharing your thoughts and your time with us. Thanks to you for listening. For more information. Visit our website, urbanpolitical.polyg.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.